Good morning, everybody. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. We've got uh, we've got a good schedule today. We're going to do a do a couple of things differently, and um, so no, no matter of time, we're going, to, we're going to go ahead and get this kicked off. Uh, I want to thank Mike for for opening us up in prayer, and uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be amongst us today and uh, continue to transform hearts in this church. So. Um, so honored to have today as our speaker, uh, Dr. Mike Miller. Um, Mike is uh, someone that needs a little introduction around this part. Uh, but as I was thinking, um, you know, as, it, as we put this group together, I, I cannot, he was the most requested speaker <laughs> amongst, uh, no offense to all of you that have gone before. But, uh, <laughs> you were playing second fiddle, his schedule was booked. Um, but, uh, no, just, but, um, so many men came up to me and said, you know, you really have to have Mike come and speak to the, yeah. speak to the group. Um, and, you know, I don't know Mike very well, but I certainly know that, um, you know, what he's done um, uh, around here certainly aligns with our mission uh, as a men's breakfast. And that's to encourage men to grow as passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. And I know he's had an impact on many of the leaders within our church. Forms um, of a mentoring relationship, a teaching relationship, and uh, it's just been such a blessing. So, Mike, we appreciate you being here with us, being here with us this morning. We appreciate you leading us, and uh, I look forward to hearing what God's going to share with us through you today. Right at the top of my notes here is to turn on the recorder. And I'll explain that. I have a daughter who um, <coughs> is trying to record some of the things that I say, and she usually sends me over here with this fancy Sony recording machine that you stick in the pocket. And one of the problems I have with it is the on-off switch is called hold on Sony, and it doesn't mean on-off to me, but I think it's on and operating, and uh, she would be glad if it works, and I am willing to gratify her in that certainly. I really want to express my appreciation to Tim for inviting me to speak to this group. Uh, I remember many days of working with the men's group when I was Minister of Education in the church from 1989 to 1998, and uh, the struggle that we had to revitalize or make vital the ministry of men in the life of the church and I've been excited to see what has been happening in this group over the last almost a year now I have missed the last two presentations but I attended all of them before that so I have an idea of what the uh, speaker is supposed to say uh, and I'm not real sure that I'm going to say that. <laughs> I, know, I know, for example, that you're supposed to start off with a joke, but the only problem is I don't know any jokes. <laughs> I, I really don't. I never, never sat down to learn uh, many jokes at all. Uh, and then it's like, well, if I don't know any jokes, maybe I ought to tell a story. And then I tried to decide, well, what kind of a story am I going to tell them? Am I going to tell them a sea story, or am I going to tell them a preacher story? And I thought about that for a little bit, and I thought, well, if I tell them a sea story, I may never get back on track again. Well, I really want to say. And so I decided I would tell you a preacher story. Just to say something about the background of that comment, um, and add a little bit to what Tim said about me in the introduction, 
I have had two professional lives, one as an officer in the U.S. Navy and the other as a minister in the United Methodist Church. Uh, the first one uh, commenced in 1952 when I entered the U.S. Naval Academy, and I graduated in 1956, and I spent eight years of commissioned service, most of them in uh, submarines, uh, one year on a destroyer and then in submarine school, and two years on a diesel-powered boat, an old, old World War fleet-type boat, and then nuclear power school after uh, an interview with Admiral Rickover, and all of us who had interviews with Admiral Rickover remember that, and we will remember it to our dying day. <laughs> and then uh, my final duty in the Navy, interestingly enough, was teaching Navy nuclear power, to, uh, teaching a Navy nuclear power school to enlisted men. I taught reactor principles and reactor construction and design. And just to put a date on it, 50 years ago last month, I left the U.S. Navy to enter the ministry of the United Methodist Church. I was 30 years old. And if you do the math, you'll come up with it pretty quick. So that's the, that's the guy that stands before you today after a good many years of experience. Now, the preacher story I decided to tell uh, is not mine. It spread Craddock's, but it was so impressive to me, and it relates to what I want to say today, that I thought uh, you, you might be interested in it. Fred Craddock told this story in uh, a talk he gave when he was here as part of a Christian education weekend that uh, we were hosting for the North Georgia Annual Conference. And he told about being invited to a breakfast where there were about 200 realtors present. See? And he had been invited by a very dear friend of his who happened to be president of the organization at that time. And she asked him to come, and because she was a very good friend, he agreed to do it. And, she, and he got there, and he, she came up to him and greeting him. Oh, Dr. Craddock, it's so good to have you here. It's always a blessing to have you I've heard it before. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, and would you mind saying grace for us? And as Fred told the story, the answer to her question, which he didn't verbalize, was no. I would not enjoy saying, I would mind saying grace for you. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he, didn't, he, like I, and probably all other uh, men of the cloth, have some reluctance to say a word of grace or a prayer in a secular gathering. Uh, I, can, I can only speak for myself. I, it's one of the most difficult things I do. And he absolutely did not want to say grace uh, before the breakfast. But this was a very good friend of his, and he didn't want to embarrass her. So he said, well, certainly I'll be glad to do that. So the time came, and she called the meeting to order and said, and now Dr. Fred Craddock will say a word of grace for us. And he got up, and as he told it, he prayed a prayer that he sometimes prays, uh, and it was this, Lord, help us to believe that what you give us to do today is more important than how we feel about it. Amen. <laughs> uh, 
And then he sat down. <laughs> and of course, the meeting went along, and there were talks and other kinds of things. And finally, the meeting came to a close, and Fred was standing up and saying goodbye to his hostess, and he was starting to walk away from the table, and he heard this sound inside behind him, and it was uh, a young man who had been sitting fairly far back in the group, and he said, Hey, you! And Fred turned around and he said, Are you talking to me? He said, yeah, I'm talking to you. Were you the one that prayed? And Fred said, well, yes, I was. And he said, well, I was sitting pretty far back, and I couldn't tell for sure. And he said, I don't agree with you. <laughs> and Fred looked at him, and he said, uh, he said, what do you mean you don't agree with me? And he said this. He said, well, there is nothing in this world more or less important than how I feel about it. And Fred's response to that was, you and I have really got the problem. <laughs> and I guess I tell you that today because I find a lot of people running around loose whose only standard and value is how they feel about anything that they're doing. And there was a little book, and this is the last mention I'm going to make of C.S. Lewis, I promise you. <laughs> there was a little book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man, which says essentially that if you go around with a philosophy like that, the only standard of value that has anything to do with life is how I feel about what's happening to me right now. It is the end of humanity, basically. It certainly is the end of Christianity. And I'm worried about this world in which we live because I find an awful lot of people for whom that is absolutely so. <laughs> and I, I really appreciated Fred Craddock telling that story because that says, help us to believe that what you give us to do today, Lord, is more important than how we feel about it. And now that's, that's my funny story for the morning. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it gets worse from here. Anyway, I really struggled with what do you want to say to this group of men assembled? In and then, then I, I subscribe to Christianity Today online. And weekly, I get a, a, a list of articles uh, from Christianity Today about what's going on in the, the world of Christianity. And uh, about the time that I got the invitation from Tim, I was reading it one morning, and I, I got this. I saw this first article about a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll being in trouble. Now I don't, I didn't know who Mark Driscoll was because Mark Driscoll is a pastor of Mars Hill Church, which is a twelve thousand member church out in the Seattle area somewhere. And evidently, he has made a reputation by by being uh, rather blunt which is the politest word. Salty is another word that comes to mind. Uh, profane, actually, in talking about the image that we have of Jesus Christ. And he, what, he was, what he was saying was that we have got too effeminate an image of Jesus Christ. Now, I, you know, I tend to agree with him on that, quite frankly. At least in the history of the church, one of the most pernicious phrases in the church is, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. <laughs> One of the worst phrases ever is in a Wesleyan hymn. And William Blake used it in his poem on, uh, poem on the Lamb. He had the idea that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. And there was a period in the history of the church when I first entered the ministry back in 1964 uh, when we projected uh, a really Casper Milk Toast image of Jesus Christ. Casper Milk Toast? Some of you know that. I mean, the, older types know, the, the world's 
most significant doormat. Everybody walked over poor old Casper Miltos. He wouldn't say anything if he had a mouthful of it. You understand that? You understand what I'm saying? And uh, we had that image, and we tended to protect that. Guess what happened? The preachers found themselves teaching to a large collection of women on Sunday morning. There was a period in the life of the church in the 60s and 70s, perhaps in reaction to the, the Second World War, when we projected an image uh, which I think is characterized most typically by Werner Solomon's uh, head of Jesus. I don't know whether you, ever, you remember that, but it was the classic picture of Jesus. It was a, a Roman face, a beautiful Roman face with long flowing locks and and a very calm looking out, out, out at the world. And that, I've seen that picture hanging in churches, or at least I used to. Fortunately, I don't anymore, because I kind of think it got to what I'm talking about. And this led me to thinking, you know, well, Mike, what is your image of Christ? I thought, well, maybe it might be interesting for the men of the church to hear something about the authors, the people who have shaped my spirituality over the years, and about the image of Christ which has come out of that. So I've decided that I'm going to introduce you to some authors that you may know and some that you may not know. As I thought about it, I thought if you want to take notes on these authors, because I'm going to recommend books. So, so if you, those of us, those of you who know me know that that's, that's my stock and trade, recommend books to read. <laughs> and the, the first author I want to talk about may surprise you is Nikos Kazantzakis. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hands, hands up. How many of you know who I'm talking about? Good. All right. Uh, you know, I don't like to tell people things that they already know. <laughs> Nikos Kazantzakis was one of, was one of, I was going to say, one of the greatest Greek novelists of the last century. He was the greatest Greek novelist of the last century. And you will know that at least one of his, two of his books, when I mentioned them, Zorba the Greek and The Last Temptation of Christ. Both of those were made in the movies. Uh, Anthony Quinn won an Oscar for his portrayal of Zorba the Greek. Zorba was the man who threw himself into life. He did everything with gusto and enthusiasm. And he lived right up front. Now, we wouldn't want to take his standards of morality uh, as the, the guide for life. <laughs> I, just, I don't think. Zorba was the man who never left a woman unfulfilled. <laughs> but he solved the problems of life by entering into life with total abandon. And in the book, uh, Cousin Sachs has pictured him as working under a boss who thought the solution to every problem in the world was to go off in a corner and read a book. <laughs> and so I was forever trying to get, him, get his nose out of those books and enter into the real life that he was confronting. Zorba was the man who danced when his 10-year-old son died. And some people said to him, why did you dance at the funeral of your son? And he said, I had to dance or I would have gone crazy. To express the grief some way, so I had to dance. I've read four books. I think The Last Temptation of Christ was the first book of his that I read. Um, 
Interesting note. I read somewhere, picked up somewhere. You know, the last in the last temptation of Christ, the last forty pages or so is the sort of uh, semi-conscious dream sequence of Christ hanging on the cross, uh, barely conscious, but his life is going by him, and he is he is faced by that last temptation, the temptation to deny the the truth of what he has lived out and what he is dying for. Cousins not just wrote that in one sitting, crying all the way through. Now, I'm not recommending that you see the movie. Generally speaking, I don't go to movies based on the Bible. The reason I don't is I'm enough of a student of Marshall McLuhan to know that the medium changes the message. Guess what? The Gospels are not biographies. They never were. And they certainly are not scripts for movies. <laughs> and... And the movies never really achieved very much. I'm not much of a fan of the movie industry, particularly not in terms of that. But I've read two other books of Kazantzakis's. One is a biography of Francis of Assisi, St. Francis. And it is a mystical biography. If you ever want to read about Francis of Assisi with something of a mystical flavor to it, you read Kazantzakis's Francis. But the one that really sort of changed my thinking about Jesus of Nazareth and about God is Nikos Kazantzakis is the Saviors of God, and it's called Spiritual Exercises, uh, which is, uh, and it's not a book that's easy reading, and I'm not going to tell you that I understand all of it. It is Kazantzakis probing his soul and challenging the soul of his readers. And uh, I want to read a passage from what he calls the first step of the ego. And, uh, without further ado, let me read it for you. I put my body through its paces like a war horse. I keep it lean, sturdy, prepared. I harden it and I pity it. I have no other steed. I keep my brain wide awake, lucid, unmerciful. I unleash it to do battle relentlessly so that all light it may devour the darkness of the flesh. I have no other workshop where I may transform darkness into light. I keep my heart flaming, courageous, restless. I feel in my heart all the commotions and all the contradictions, the joys and sorrows of life, but I struggle to subdue them to a rhythm superior to that of the mind, harsher than that of my heart to the ascending rhythm of the universe. The cry within me is a call to arms. It shouts, I, the cry, am the Lord your God. I am not an asylum. I am not hope and a home. I am not the Father, nor the Son, nor the Holy Ghost. I am your general. You may get an idea why this appeals to me from that. <laughs> you are not my slave, nor plaything in my hands. You are not my friend. You are not my child. You are my comrade at arms. Hold courageously the passes which I entrusted to you. Do not just betray them. You are in duty bound, and you may act heroically by remaining at your own battle station. Love, danger. What is most difficult? That is what I want. Which road should you take? The most craggy ascent It is the one I also take. Follow me. Learn to obey. Only he who obeys a rhythm superior to his own is free. Learn to command. Only he who can give commands may represent me here on earth. Love responsibilities. Say, it is my duty and mine alone to save the earth. If it is not saved, then I alone am to blame. 
Love each man according to his contribution in the struggle. Do not seek friends, seek comrades in arms. And, and since I read that, I don't know that it has ever been totally out of my mind. And when I think about God and think about Jesus Christ, sooner or later, I'm going to be thinking about my general, the one in command, my comrade. Let me read another passage which relates to that. It has to do with praying. My prayer is not the whimpering of a beggar nor a confession of love, nor is it the trivial reckoning of a small tradesman. Give me and I shall give you. My prayer is the report of a soldier to his general. This is what I did today. This is how I fought to save the entire battle in my own sector. These are the obstacles I found. This is how I plan to fight tomorrow. My God and I are horsemen galloping in the burning sun or under drizzling rain. Pale, starving, but unsubdued, we ride and converse. Leader, I cry. He turns his face toward me, and I shudder to confront his anguish. Our love for each other is rough and ready. We sit at the same table. We drink the same wine in this low tavern of life. Cousin Zakis died in 1957. He was traveling in China at the time that he died. It's interesting that Aristotle <coughs> placed his private debt at the use of his widow, Mrs. Kazantakis, to fly his body in anywhere in the world that she wanted to fly him and to have him buried there. And, of course, uh, he loved Crete. So they flew him to Crete. Then a problem arose because uh, he was nominally Greek Orthodox, but the Greek Orthodox Church was not very pleased with Nikos Kazantzakis. If you read Sorb of the Greek, you'll understand. Because he has some rather cutting things to say about the Greek Orthodox Church. So they ran all over the island, and finally they found a, a priest who would do the burial, and they, they gathered around the grave a crowd of people who had heard about the fact that Kazantzakis' body was there. A crowd of people gathered around the grave, and they got to the point in the service where they were ready to lower the casket into the ground, and the mechanism jammed, so they couldn't lower it. And out of the crowd stepped a giant of a man who might have been Zorba himself, who grabbed that mechanism and manually lowered that casket into the ground all by himself and stepped back into the crowd and disappeared. I commend the saviors of God to you. You will never read another book like it. I promise you. I promise you. And then as I thought about it, I thought of another man who has shaped my, my spirituality, such as it is. Anyway, um, Andre Nowen. Okay. Uh, for how many is that a familiar name? Yeah, if you, if you really know a little bit about Andre Nowen. He was a, he was a Dutchman born in 1932. And, uh, he became a priest, um, in, 1950, I think it was, and at any rate, he studied uh, uh, pastoral counseling and became a teacher of pastoral counseling and taught, he taught at Notre Dame, he taught at Yale, he taught at Harvard, uh, and he wrote little books. They're all, they're all little books. They're about like this, the one that I'm going to share a little bit with you. Um, but they're the kind of little books that you read and you remember and you think about them and you read them over again. And they're all still in print, uh, just as I suspect, well, I'm not sure the Saviors of God is still in print, but you can find it on Amazon.com. You can find anything on Amazon.com, right? At any rate, um, the, uh, the, 
the one that I want to hold up for you is the one that has meant the, the most to me. It's the three movements of the spiritual life, reaching out by Andrzej M. Nowen. Um, it is, the three movements of life are very simple. The movement from loneliness to solitude, from hostility to hospitality, and from illusion to prayer. Loneliness to solitude, how do you deal with yourself and the fact that you are ultimately alone in the universe? Is it a desperate loneliness that causes you to reach out and grab people and pull them in and use them to try and combat your loneliness? Incidentally, those of you who know me well know that I am a charter member of the Dead Poets Society. So I'm half in mourning this morning. I don't pay much attention to movies, quite honestly, but Robin Williams captivated me. I've probably seen more of his movies than any other actor. And the Dead Poets Society was a great movie. It was a little bit heavy on the caricature of the characters in it, but it got the message across. Sensitivity. Hostility to hospitality. How do we do it with other people? Do we treat them defensively, always worried about how they're going to deal with us? Or are we open to them? Do we offer them hospitality, which now it calls friendly open space, where they can realize in our presence whatever it is that God wants them to be? And the final one, delusion to prayers, how do we deal with God? And the illusion, my dear friends, is the illusion of immortality. Let me read you a couple of paragraphs now about that. The greatest obstacle to our entering into that profound dimension of life where our prayer takes place is our all-pervasive illusion of immortality. At first it seems unlikely or simply untrue that we have such an illusion. Since on many levels we are quite uh, aware of our mortality, who thinks that he is immortal? But the first two movements of our spiritual life have already revealed to us that things are not quite that simple. Every time we search anxiously for another human being who can break the chains of our loneliness, and every time we build new defenses to protect our life as an inalienable property, we find ourselves caught in that tenacious illusion of immortality. Although we keep telling each other and ourselves that we will not live forever and that we are going to die soon, our daily actions, thoughts, and concerns keep revealing to us how hard it is to fully accept the reality of our own statements. Small, seemingly innocent <coughs> events keep telling us how easily we eternalize ourselves and our world. It takes only a hostile word to make us feel sad and lonely. It takes only a rejecting gesture to plunge us into self-complaint. It takes only substantial failure in our work to lead us into a self-destructive depression. Although we have learned from parents, teachers, friends, and many books, sacred as well as profane, that we are worth more than what the world makes us, we keep giving an eternal value to the things we own, the people we know, the plans we have, and the successes we collect. Indeed, it takes only a small disruption to lay our illusion of immortality bare and to reveal how much we have become victimized. I don't know exactly how that speaks to you, but it speaks to me. I see it all too often and all too commonly in my own life. I learned by reading Alan. Alan left Harvard. Who leaves Harvard when you got a position at Harvard? Alan left Harvard in 1986 to take a position as chaplain in Daybreak of the Ark community in Toronto. The Ark is a French organization in which groups of people 
some severely handicapped and severely disabled, some able-bodied live together in a home, and the able-bodied take care of the disabled, and they earn the upkeep of the home. And uh, he spent the last 10 years doing that. Uh, he wrote about it, and I think I can have good time with a little time to share. He wrote about it, or he spoke about it. Actually, he was asked to come back to Harvard during that period to speak on world peace. And he went back and spoke about the peace of the most disabled man in, in, the, uh, in the community, Adam. He called the talk Adam's Peace. Adam is the weakest person in our family. He is a 25-year-old man who cannot speak, cannot dress or undress himself, cannot walk alone, cannot eat without much help. He does not cry or laugh. He occasionally does, only occasionally does he make eye contact. His back is distorted. His arm and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy and despite heavy medication, sees few days without grand mal seizures. Sometimes as he grows suddenly rigid, he utters a howling groan. Only on a few occasions I have seen a, one big tear roll down his cheek. And what he says is that in caring for Adam, Adam John Arnett, who died just a few months before Henry Nauman died, he learned of peace. Because ultimately peace comes out of that which is the most help. That is the peace that is of God, not the peace of this world. But remember that the peace you seek is not of this world. Don't be distracted by the great noises of war, the dramatic descriptions of misery, the sensational exploitation of cruelty. Newspapers, movies, and war novels may numb you, but they do not create the true desire for peace. They mostly create feelings of shame, guilt, and powerlessness, the worst motives for peace work. Keep your eyes on the one who refuses to turn stones into bread. Jump from great heights or rule with great temporal power. Keep your eyes on the one who says, Blessed are the poor, the gentle, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted in the cause of uprightness. Keep your eyes on the one who touches the lame and the blind, the one who speaks forgiveness and encouragement, the one who dies alone. Keep your eyes on the one who is poor with the poor, weak with the weak, and rejected with the rejected. That one is the source of all peace. As long as we think and live as if there is no peace and that it all depends on ourselves to make it come about, we are on the road to self-destruction. But when we trust that the God of love has already given the peace we are searching for, we will see this peace poking through the broken soil of our human condition, and we will be able to let it grow fast, even to heal the economic and political maladies of our time. Now and died, um, the media in the United States of America blew it. I read an article by a man who had written to a friend, called a friend to tell him of the death of Nowen because he didn't want him to read about it in the media. He needn't have worried. The media in the United States of America never noticed it. I could say a few words about that, but this is a polite gathering. <laughs> you should know that in his native Holland, a couple months later, they gave a state funeral for Henri Nowen. 2,000 people attended, among them Mother Teresa of Calcutta and Joan Croc the heir to the McDonald's fortune. I commend to you 
on the knowledge, and, and you can get your hand on it as and read. It will be an uplift to your heart, I promise you. Another one. Well, I'm going to jump. I want to I want to talk about at least one theologian. Otherwise, you might think that I never read any theology, <laughs> but I really do. I have read theology, and I, uh, the theologian that I've read is uh, Emil Bruner. Uh, now he's a German. All right. Uh, there was a period of time when, in order to be theologically well known in Germany, you had your name had to begin with. Uh, B, last name begin with B, Bart, Boltmann, Bonhoeffer, Brunner. All right, there, there you go, the holy quartet, <laughs> the holy four. Uh, I, I waded through Emil Brunner's uh, magnum opus one time, and I'm not going to recommend this to you. It's called The Mediator, although I, I will tell you a little story about The Mediator that I heard from one of my colleagues uh, teaching school of theology out at ORU. Uh, told me that uh, when uh, Dr. Bruner had published the, uh, the Mediator in German, uh, his publisher wanted to translate it into English for the English market, of course, for the American market. And uh, he recommended a, a young woman uh, as a translator, and Emil Bruner knew that she had a reputation as a devout atheist. And he raised some questions about, you know, Really, could a devout atheist translate something that is so centered upon the, the, the work of Christ as <clears throat> the mediator of God to human beings? And the publisher assured him she will do a very fine job. And well, after she had finished and sent a copy to Dr. Bruner, he read through it and noted that she really had done a very fine job. And so he fired off a message to her congratulating her on how well she had translated uh, his work into English. And she... She wrote back to him and said, don't thank me, I thank you. I became a Christian translating your book. See, theological tomes do convert people. <laughs> but the, the passage that I want to read to you from Emil uh, Bruner, the mediator, is, is not on the second page either. It's on a page of about 436 of 500 pages, just in case you're wondering. Uh, but it is one that I have treasured ever since I ran across it. The state of the Christian is one of confident despair. But the despair is confident, and he puts that in italic. All those inner moods and feelings as they rise and fall, tossed like the waves of the sea over an immovable sheet of rock upon which these words are clearly inscribed. I belong to Christ in spite of everything, in spite of myself, in spite of my moods and feelings, in spite of all my experience of my impotence, even in the sphere of faith. I belong to Christ not because I believe in him, but because of what Christ has said through the word which God has spoken to me in him, the mediator. Let me read that last one again. I belong to Christ not because I believe in him, not that that's not unimportant, but that isn't the final judge, but because of what Christ has said through the word which God has spoken to me in him, the mediator. Not all that long ago, I read another book by Dr. Bruner called The Misunderstanding of the Church. Uh, you should know about Emil Bruner uh, that he was somewhat skeptical of the church's organization. He really should. As a matter of fact, he spent some time in Japan, and he found there a church called Mukokai. 
in Japanese, which means the no church church. <laughs> what is there? They had done away with all organization. They were simply a fellowship of people who occasionally met together. They didn't have preachers or anything else like that. And Dr. Bruner commended that rather highly. Now, I'm, you know, I know who I am, and I know <laughs> I'm not disavowing all that I've learned, but I, I'm saying I learned something. Because what Dr. Bruner does in the misunderstanding of the church, and I got my copy of it through, uh, <coughs> through Amazon.com, what he does in the misunderstanding of the church was is saying that where we where we misunderstand is in thinking about the ecclesia as if it were in and of itself the church. Christ never used the word church as we use it. He used the word ecclesia, and he only used that twice. The called out once, and he pictures the beginning of the sacrament of communion as the time around the fire in the evening when somebody, anybody, took a loaf of bread and broke it, and by the power of the Spirit, they shared in the Spirit by breaking that bread and eating it together, and that's where the ecclesia came into being, and if you read very carefully in the book of Acts, you'll note that the early church begins with breaking bread and no mention of pouring wine. Now, I know the history of the church, and I know that you cannot, you cannot forever continue a uh, a disembodied or unorganized ideal. It won't work. It won't work. It never has. But what he says is about that, what we need in the, is the Holy Ghost who is promised to faith in Jesus Christ and who, where he is powerfully operative, brings about that freedom and obligation and that sense of obligation and freedom, that responsibility and fellowship, which is far removed from all collectivism as it is from all individualism. Now, that's a mouthful, I know, but let me just tell you what he said, interpret it for you. What he is saying, we need the fellowship of the gathering, but and certainly we need that. But it is not just being collective and being together. It is being together to invoke the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we do not dare to become individualistic. There's no such thing as an individualistic Christian, and that flies in the face of a lot of what people in the United States of America think. And then one other quote. It says, Since Christianity, for the first time in the Reformation era, grasped the fact that the essence of the ecclesia was in principle distinguishable from and in part opposed to the vessel of the church which contained it, ever new attempts have been made to give the Christian community the eternal form which best fits it. And that, although Dr. Bruner didn't say so, he could say all of them are total failures. You can't give the church an eternal form out on this earth. It is the ecclesia that is eternal, the fellowship of the Spirit. I was going to mention also the... Uh, the imitation of Christ. I have some friends in the choir here, and they've heard about the imitation of Christ before. Let me just say that the, my copy of the imitation of Christ was given to me in 1967 when I left a, serving a congregational church in Berkeley, Massachusetts, uh, that I served for a year and a half, and somebody in the congregation gave me a copy of the imitation of Christ. This is going away yet. And it sat on my shelf for the next uh, four years until I got to Woodridge, Illinois on my first full-time charge as the second pastor of the church. 
I hadn't been there more than a month, and it occurred to me that, Lord, if I'm going to survive in this situation, I'm going to need help. And all of a sudden, I, like a voice from above saying, why don't you take up the invitation and start reading it? I don't know how many times I have read it through. I don't keep count. It's part of my daily devotion to read a passage from the invitation of Christ. How is it tempered? And if you've never done that, you should. I want to close by mentioning another man, Thomas Merton. Uh, Merton, I don't know much about Merton, never read much of what he, what he wrote. He was a contemplative and he was a, uh, a leader of the contemplative movement. He was a, a Trappist monk who became a priest and he wrote the Seven Story Mountain, he wrote poems. He was a leader of the contemplative movement. What I do know about him are the last words that he spoke. In 1968, um, he was at a hotel in Malaysia in a mixed gathering of Christians and non-Christians, and he was lecturing, and it was one of the few times he'd ever traveled outside the United States, and he had some priests there, and he was lecturing them, and he got done with the lecture in this hotel, and it was typically hot in the Bangkok area, which is where the hotel was, and uh, Thailand, I said Malaysia, I meant Thailand. And some young priest came up to him afterwards and fussed at him because, as this young enthusiastic priest said, he hadn't talked enough about Jesus Christ. And Thomas Merton put up with it for a little bit. And he said, listen, the time has come when we need to stop talking about Jesus Christ. And so live that when people meet us, they will see Jesus Christ and know who they have met. And he went up to his room to take a shower and nobody knows for sure what happened, but it was an electrical accident, and he died. Now, I am rather certain that, that I could live forever and never come up with such a significant last word. You need to know those last words. The time has come when we need to stop talking about Jesus Christ, and so live that when people meet us, they will see Jesus Christ and know who they have met. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. That was that was such a blessing. Um, I was sitting there. I was thinking, uh, and I, we have a few uh, guests, so we're gonna we're, gonna, we're not gonna have our discussion time. I'll ask that you have that after we meet. But the two questions I was gonna ask, and maybe when we dismiss, you can talk about that. Is what did you hear, and what did you see? And what I heard was an inspiring message of strength. And what you may have heard might be different. What I saw was a man that's been abiding in Christ for decades. So, Mike, thank you. That was such a blessing. I really appreciate that. Um, we have a few, few, few announcements, and I think they all tie into what we just talked about. So, uh, the first one's loosely tied in. So, I'm going to invite Jeff Matter uh, to come up and talk about um, the upcoming golf tournament. So, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. If you notice on your table, I've put some uh, brochures out. I'm the direct tournament director of the Malone Dyson this year, and just wanted uh, everybody to take a look at this. And we're looking for more REMC members to play in the tournament. So this year we've done a discount for REMC members. If you're a single REMC member and you want to play, it's a $25 discount off of the $200 entry fee. If you sign up a foursome of REMC members, it's an additional $25 discount for a total of $150 per player. Um, 
if you if you've never played in it, it's a really fun event. It's Monday, October the thirteenth at the Trophy Club of Operetta. Um, all of the proceeds go to the RDMC Foundation operating account, um, which helps the foundation to operate and use the endowments for what they're designed for. Uh, if you can't play, we're asking for sponsors. We have different levels of sponsorships. There's whole sponsors, food and beverage sponsors. Um, so this year, one thing new is Bank of North Georgia is now the presenting sponsor of the tournament. Um, they have stepped up and decided to help us out. And so hopefully this will be a fun event. Take a look at it. If you can, please play. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to I'll be out there. So good to see you. Malone, thank you so much for coming today. I appreciate it. Um, so uh, next, uh, I'd like to, one of the things that Dr. Mike talked about was hostility to hospitality. So with that, Bill Newton's going to uh, present. Tim, thank you. Um, for the first 20 years I was a member at RUMC, I was really good at applying uh, didn't really participate too much, came to church Sunday school and didn't get involved. But it's been different for the last 10 years because I seem to <clears throat> be getting emails and calls about doing all sorts of things around here. And uh, about five or six weeks ago, I got an email, a couple emails actually, um, following up on uh, Mike's uh, vision for hospitality here at RUMC. And this came out, I think in large measure, Mike, from your trip to Australia, which you observed there. <clears throat> and for those of you who've been to Australia, you, I think you really understand it because uh, it is one of the most hospitable places I've ever been. And um, so I got these emails and just looking at my iPad where I opened it up and I told Anne, well, I got another email from the church asking me to do something. And she said, well, what is it? And I'm reading and spending 28 years in um, corporate culture, I um, now retired um tend to be kind of cynical sometimes in a humorous way. You can relate to that. And uh, so I said, I think they're asking me to be a homeroom mother. <laughs> and um, so uh, so we talked about it. And uh, seriously, I spent uh, really all of my career um, with two kind of, two sort of two roles. One is a problem solver. And the other is sort of a facilitator of hospitality. This is the Coca-Cola company. And um, so uh, all of us, you know, who were, were raised in good homes and, you know, go out into the working world and such, we're all familiar with hospitality. But what we typically know about is, is passive hospitality. And here at the church, a manifestation of that is we have visitors come to the church and they come into the Sunday school class and you say, introduce yourself, and you say, well, the coffee's over here, and just have a seat when you want to, uh, and we'll start the program, and, you know, introduce a few people around, but we don't typically put a whole lot of effort into really reaching out to these people, and um, so we're moving to what is called radical hospitality, and if you want to know more about that, Google it, <clears throat> put quotes around radical hospitality, because when Google searches, it'll put those two words, link those two words together in that order, and you'll see some amazing stuff come up. It is a, it is just a, an incredible concept that is been used in many, many churches with tremendous success, and um, so uh, we're going to to follow on that, and we're going to pick up 
uh, with a lot of the learnings that uh, that you know others have have gained. Um, there's a, a, a famous church that some of us are familiar with, and one of the slogans that's sort of said there is that the sermon starts sermon starts in the parking lot. And to Mike's point, um, you know, we we've talked about hospitality. We we do the passive hospitality. But we're really going to become radical about it, and we really want people to, when they come to RUMC, they see Christ in everyone whom they're talking to. And a lot of it's going to start in the parking lot. Y'all saw, I've seen the email about the parking assistance and such, but we've got some other jobs that are going to come along, and we're really going to engage the men in this, so this isn't the only time you're going to hear about this. You'll get an email, some emails that will come out about it. But we're going to need some assistance as we sort of begin to unfold this over the next months with um, some additional greeters, um, a position that we're sort of calling parking lot hospitality, which are informed people who will be in the parking lot um, who will assist greeter, uh, assist visitors and others uh, as they are coming into RUMC both in a welcoming way and providing information that they need in terms of visiting or finding their way or wherever. Eventually get this ratcheted up where we'll have some walkie-talkies and, you know, be able to to uh, to, to make that work. Um, Mike's talked in sermons about the umbrella hospitality that when we have a really uh, terrible rainy day that we're going to try to have some ways to help people um, sort of ferry in and out of the parking lot to get into the building. And then um, we'll be working with the city of Roswell, hopefully, on an arrangement where we will have some golf carts available, like a lot of other churches do, to get people from the you know the far back back 40 in the parking lot in up closer to the building, and particularly some of our guests and some of our more elderly members and such. Um, but hospitality um, it has been around. You know, this whole concept uh, started in the first century A.D. Jesus Christ. Go back and look at Luke 14, the parable of the guests. Uh, that's really um, what we're, what we're going to be aiming for. So uh, I'll be sending an email. I'm going to put the sign-up sheets back here at the table, and we'd love to have uh, some of y'all sign up for this uh, and be a part of it. If you have any questions, shoot me an email or, uh, or catch me today. Thanks. Who he has concerned about our greater community and uh, wants to reach people in our community for Christ. Who here is especially concerned about the youth in our community and want to reach youth for Christ? Well, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm here to introduce uh, Patrick Choi, who's going to just briefly speak about what he's doing in our community to reach youth for Christ and how you can help reach other youth. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Patrick Choi. I just graduated from Georgia College with a degree in marketing. And I'm now on staff with Crew. Um, you guys may know it as Campus Crusade or Student Venture. Um, Jeremy Absher, I think he was involved with the church. He was actually doing what I'm doing now. But um, what is Crew? Essentially, we're just a ministry that's concerned about connecting people with Christ, um, specifically high school kids. So what I'll be doing is I'll be working at Centennial High School and Johns Creek High School. And uh, what we believe in is essentially win, build, send. So we want to win the students to Christ. What that looks like, uh, Monday night we have large group meetings, somewhat like this, where we connect kids to Christ. Uh, we're going to expose the gospel with them. 
during our outreaches, we're going to expose the gospel to them, and whether they like it or not, they're going to hear who Jesus is and what they did. And, you know, we really want to bring a lot of the unchurched kids, kids who don't have a community at home, kids who um, probably will never go to church, kids who don't know um, really what church is, what community is, what God's love is. So that's what our one aspect is. The second aspect is build. You know, our ministry would be kind of pointless if we just kind of brought the kids on Monday night, told them who Jesus is, and that's it. So we really want to build them in their faith. We want to strengthen them, equip them, train them in what it looks like to to strengthen your relationship with Christ, um, what it looks like to have a foundation in Christ. And this is done through our Bible studies, our life-on-life discipleship, and just things like that where they can really just see more of what what this looks like, what community looks like, what church looks like, and what um, making your religion kind of your own, your faith your own. One thing I've noticed with high school kids is faith is really, really borrowed from their friends and from their parents. They don't really know how to make it their own. And, you know, the third aspect is send. So we want to bring these kids who we've trained and equipped and send them back into the schools um, where they can have a positive influence on their campus. The kids who are unchurched, who are unreached, they can see these kids um, they can see that they have a relationship with Christ and, um, you know, kind of they can live radically, missionally for the other kids. And, you know, I spoke last Sunday to what, foundation class. And you know, the, the need is real. Um, these kids, every day they go into school and it's scary for them. A lot of kids, they don't, they don't know Christ. They don't know, um, they don't know really anything. And one thing Mr. Miller said that really hit me was, when that man passed away, you know, the media, they blew it. And in a lot of aspects in, in high school ministry and ministry and, you know, students in general, the media has blown it for them with just the way they think kids should live their lives. Um, you know, kids think resulting in partying and just <laughs> sex and just other things will make them happy, will satisfy them. And they keep chasing and chasing and chasing these things that aren't going to satisfy them. And, you know, People ask me, you know, what you're doing sounds great, but why why choose that route? And it's because God's He opened my eyes to the need that high school kids need Jesus. And you know, I've seen firsthand just you know the cuts on their wrists, um, the pain and the tears that they're going through, just from being addicted to drugs, being addicted addicted to alcohol, and just you know things that no high school kids really deal with. So um, you know the need is real. It, it's scary that these kids they don't have an outlet to turn to. The way the world's moving, schools are becoming less and less about Jesus and more and more about anything else that has nothing to do with Jesus. And it's sad that it's, it's becoming that way. Um, so just two ways that you guys can really help me is, one, in order to be allowed to go onto the campuses, I need to be fully supported. Um, what that looks like is I need $3,100 a month. Right now I'm about $1,500 short. Um, so, you know, this morning I was praying, you know, God, you, you're, you've obviously called me here, so I'm going to ask for big things. So, you know, if anyone would like to just talk to me afterwards, talk about ways that you can donate or give online, um, you know, I'd be glad to talk to you guys more about how you can do that. And the other thing is just pray. Um, you know, pray for me, pray for my team, and pray for the students just because it's a scary time for a lot of them. A lot of them don't know who Christ is, and they don't have any outlet to um, talk about Christ. So thank you a lot, and... I'll be right here. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I know we have a great youth program. We have a lot of people here that support it, but Patrick's going. You know, he's he's going, and uh, um, I hope I hope we can uh, 
confided in our hearts to uh, to help them out follow that calling. One of the things I've been praying about, and I've, I've mentioned this, I've been praying about a lot relative to uh, this men's group. <coughs> Certainly we've seen the Spirit moving among us, uh, but one of the things that I've been really praying about is is that from this, um, from our men's group, that we could have some men's Bible studies that people could get connected with, where they could um, uh, they could get deep into the Word and develop relationships with, with other men in our church. And um, you know, something rich that we could invite invite people to and, and ask them to be a part of. So I want to uh, bring up Paul, who's going to talk about a study that's going to be beginning in September and um, that all, each of you are invited to participate in. So thanks for being here, Paul. Yep. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to show a... We're, we are a Bible study. Um, you don't know, we're called the Holy Rollers, okay? We meet on Monday nights. Uh, over in the A building. Uh, I put a brochure, I think, uh, on, on most of the tables here that's going to talk about uh, what we're doing on Monday night. Um, we're going to start uh, a, something called the Truth Project. It's a, it's a video series put out by a Focus on the Family. And honestly, Dr. Miller, that's the third time I've heard Henry Nouwen's name mentioned this week. So um, I think this is a God thing. But anyway... Um, I'm going to show a real short video here. It's two minutes long. Uh, let me just start it up. You are about to take what could well be the most important tour of your life. It's going to be a worldview tour. We are going to turn and gaze upon the face of God. What should we hear? What should we see? You are going to be amazed. Why did Jesus come into the world? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know from time to time, we're going to bring some experts into the classroom. The world is reeling with uncertainty. It's almost like it's in the air. Truth is fundamentally about who God is. We're challenged to either confront culture, to abandon it, or transform it. Is our culture filled with lies? This is a battle of worldviews. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? What is it? Where did it come? Why is it in the world? Who is God? Who is God? Who is man? What does God say about who man is? What takes us captive? What is intent? What is the world's view of work? God is a God of social order. We're going to look at economic, art, media, music, and literature in this sphere of labor. We're going to look at the area of philosophy and ethics. Everything is about relationships. There is no direction you can travel in which God has not spoken.
Okay, you can see um, that you know most of the series, it's a, it's a video series, and then there is an opportunity to have a discussion afterwards. And these are all big, big topics. I mean, you know, I've, I've, um, I've recently been reading uh, or rereading um, Packer's, uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And one of the things he talks about in there is that we have, we tend to have, especially as modern people, we tend to have kind of this view of God as being personal. But the problem is, is that, you know, we tend to bring God down to us rather than us attempting to rise to God. And so uh, what what we're going to be challenged in this series is to what is your worldview? Do you really believe the things that you say you really, really believe? And that's kind of the, the whole point of it. So I'd encourage you to come. Um, frankly, we'd like to have uh, anybody who is, wants to attend is, is free to. Uh, we are starting the, the Monday night after Labor Day on September the 8th. Uh, it runs from, it's 12 weeks, the series is 12 weeks long. It runs, uh, we typically gather around 7 o'clock and start at 7 o'clock. We're usually done by 8.30. Um, so, you know, hey, uh, we, we try to get out before, you know, Monday Night Football and all that kind of thing gets going. But um, in any event, um, just if you could give, uh, I've got uh, Dave Cunningham, who is the leader of this group. If you could give him just a, a call or uh, there's an email address on the, on the, uh, there for you. And just let him know because, you know, we, we frankly we want to kind of know how many people because we may have to remove the rooms is what it boils down to. I mean, it's a logistics thing. So all are welcome. We appreciate it. Uh, and uh, thanks, Tim, for the opportunity. All right, everybody. Well, thank you. Um, Mike, would you mind closing us in prayer? <laughs> <laughs> this is not a secular gathering. I, I see what you did there. <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I could say, help us to believe that what you give us to do today is more important than <laughs> But I'll say a little bit more than that. Yeah. For the gifts of gathering together, for the gifts of fellowship, for the warm handshake, the inspiration of being part of a gathering of like-minded men. For all of that, Lord, we are abundantly grateful. So send us forth through the tasks that you give us to do. Help us to do them with the expectancy that somewhere in all of those tasks, we will see you and experience your guiding hand. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.